You're listening to City Beat, the weekly podcast from UrbanMilwaukee.com. I'm your host, Jeremy Janine. Today on the show, we are joined by Joey Grijalva, author of the recently released Milwaukee Jazz Book. We'll learn what inspired Joey to write the book, who some of Milwaukee's most important musicians are, and to borrow from Chicago, all that jazz. Don't touch that dial, close that app, or hit skip. We will be right back. Before we talk about jazz, let's talk about you, Joey. What is the Joey Grijalva story? Well, Jeremy, um, I find it uh, a bit ironic that I'm here with you on this podcast doing uh, the first press for my new book. And that is because about five years ago, you may recall, uh, when I moved back to town as a young journalist and was looking to get my first foot in the door, a friend told me about Urban Milwaukee, told me about you, connected me with you. We had a meeting, and at that meeting, my first priority was to pitch a podcast that I had been doing about people from Milwaukee and people um, who were living in Milwaukee doing interesting things. Uh, You sort of passed on that podcast, but you did invite me to write for Urban Milwaukee, and that was my first job here in Milwaukee as a writer. And if I had a nickel for every time someone pitched us a podcast, I'd have a couple dollars, and that could pay for a little station time here at River West Radio. (laughs) Uh, But yes, the the podcast was a good idea. I remember that at the time. This is a good idea. Its time has not yet come for Urban Milwaukee. We've grown a lot in that time. You have as well. Tell us a bit about your background before you pitch me a podcast. Sure. So uh, I'm a Milwaukee native. I, I grew up in the Sherman Park neighborhood. Uh, went away to college uh, in Minneapolis, messed around in Europe for a little bit, ended up in Canada and got a uh, journalism degree at Concordia University in Montreal. Uh, that didn't really work out. Uh, moved back home about five years ago, like I said, and have been writing in town ever since. Uh, started with Urban Milwaukee in 2016. I started freelancing for 88.9 Radio Milwaukee for their website, writing features. Was a columnist at Wisconsin Gazette uh, before it folded uh, last fall. RIP, um, and have been a substitute teacher as well uh, to pay the bills. At MPS or somewhere else? MPS. So let's let's talk about the book. I have it in my hand right here, which does no good for anyone listening. But if you could see it, it is one of the Arcadia books, Images of America, Milwaukee Jazz. I had the chance to read it today in full. Uh, it It's nice because it doesn't take all day. It's mostly pictures. It's mostly <laughs> pictures, yes. Again, another great thing for radio. But... You have this book. It's now reality, but it probably wasn't as easy to get here. Where did the idea from this book come from? Yeah, it's been a three-year journey, and it all started in 2016 when my then-boss at 88.9, Tariq Moody, asked me to write a straightforward little article about Milwaukee jazz uh, because uh, the jazz estate was reopening under new ownership. Um, so I, being a music fan that I am, I'm, I'm a hip-hop kid, but hip-hop sort of led me to jazz, and, and I always had a, had a love of jazz. And so I dug my teeth in, uh, probably more than I should have, and I ended up with this 5,000-word, two-part, multimedia series um, for the website of 88.9. And that's a very Joey Grijalva type thing to do. 
It is. That has kind of become my calling card. <laughs> um, that went on to win an award uh, at the Milwaukee Press Club. And then I had this, this overflow of information, research I had done about the history of Milwaukee jazz. And I'm, I'm very interested in the topic of race and the racial dynamics um, in jazz and music and American music in general is, is very interesting to me. Um, like I said, having grown up in Sherman Park um, and always sort of identifying with black culture and having a Latino dad and a white mom, it's just always been sort of at the forefront. And so I wanted to write a book about sort of the interplay of, of race with jazz and hip hop in Milwaukee. And so I created a Patreon page which is kind of like crowdsourcing, but it's monthly installments. And I basically just wanted to raise enough money so I could take some time off from teaching to write this book. Um, that didn't happen, but <laughs> the Patreon page got the attention of Arcadia Publishing, who do these um, local and regional history books, mostly pictures, pictorial history books. Um, and they asked if I'd like to expand on my research and do a Milwaukee jazz book uh, for them. And it's something I had thought about before. Um, someone had mentioned it to me, and I said, I, I want to do something a little more sociological, a little more cultural critique. But this was a publisher-backed opportunity. And so I took it to the jazz community. I said, is this something you'd like to see? And overwhelmingly, they said, yes, please. We would love if you did that. And so, that, so then I dug my teeth in even further and interviewed over two dozen uh, musicians, radio DJs, musicians' kids, club owners, aficionados, journal, other journalists who were active at the time, um, and gathered a ton of photos from individuals, um, civic organizations, and put together this book. And like I said, it took about two years after the, the contract came in, and I ended up with an overflow of photos. It's a very uh, strict limitation for how many exact page numbers. So a lot of people I couldn't fit in the book. And there are a lot of people whose names I kept hearing who I just couldn't find photos for. So this is, you know, it, while it might seem like a comprehensive look at, at a hundred years of jazz in Milwaukee, it is just a slice of that history because I could only talk to so many people and find so many photos. But it is sort of a comprehensive look. It's through the years. It's the chapters are broken up sequentially, but also thematically. Yeah, they, there was an interesting chapter on women in jazz. I noticed at one point I was a bit concerned that I was watching segregation play out page by page because the book opens with kind of a history of how jazz arrived in Milwaukee. And then for a period it gets wider, but then, oh, no, Joey's just got different themes here with big band and different eras. Mm -hmm. So that was interesting and something I want to dive into. Uh, one thing I want to talk about, we are recording this at River West Radio on Center Street. The Jazz Gallery is just down the street. I never knew what type of role that uh, establishment had, but tell us a bit about what the Jazz Gallery has to do with the history of jazz in Milwaukee and then the present. Yeah, so the Jazz Gallery played a key role in sort of the renaissance that happened in the 70s and 80s. And uh, the starting point for that, I would say, was the... Um, Wisconsin Conservatory of Jazz creating the first accredited um, degree program in jazz in 1971 that was co-founded by Manti Ellis, the great guitarist who's still alive at 86 and he appears on the cover of the book. Uh, Manti and Tony King, uh, a piano player and educator, um, they created that program and that pumped out a ton of talent in the 70s. There was also um, a musician from Indianapolis originally, part of the Montgomery Brothers, Buddy Montgomery. He was coming through town, fell in love with a girl, and uh, ended up staying for a dozen years or so. So he was very instrumental. And all these things sort of came together. And then the Jazz Gallery 
opened in 1978. Uh, it was opened by Chuck LaPaglia, a Chicago native who moved to Milwaukee to teach at UWM. He had connections in Chicago and New York, and he brought a lot of people in from Chicago, mixed them with Milwaukee musicians. He was inspired by a, a local legend, Haddish Alexander, a saxophone player. Um, and so they, they had a six-year run, and it seems very short in the span of time, but it was instrumental in that renaissance, as I was referring to. A lot of the players at the Conservatory's jazz program got to play at the gallery as sort of the sidemen for these big names like Art Blakey and Sonny Stitt and Chet Baker. And um, so all, all these big names were coming into, the, into Milwaukee and getting to play with some young guys in Milwaukee who then went on to move to New York City and become heralded jazz musicians themselves. And specifically, you know, I'm thinking of David Hazeltine, Brian Lynch, Carl Allen. Well, you've hit on many things that I want to talk about, one of which is just the dizzying array of people that appear in the book. Uh, your book includes mentions of a lot of big names, Dizzy Gillespie, Duke Ellington, Benny Goodman, Johnny Coltrane, how they came to Milwaukee, and that there's a section kind of on big names towards the end of the book. Right. But much of the book is people that I'm meeting for the first time. Like, I know Sam Belton, but I know Sam Belton because he has City Net Cafe on Wisconsin right. Avenue, and there's a drum set in there. I don't know him through jazz. I know he is part of jazz. Right. But I was interested to see where he intersects in the book. How did you discover these people? Do, is it just like peeling back the onion and they just keep coming? Or is it a lot of chasing down history? Because we're going back to 1916 in the history here when you note that, and I've got to pull up the name here, John H. Wycliffe and the famous ginger band of Chicago roll into town. That is how jazz starts. I guess start there. How do you determine that's when jazz arrived in Milwaukee and how do you march forward from there? So I must say that a lot of the research for this book and the, this book in and of itself is the is like I use building blocks being um, other works that have been done about jazz. Ben Barbara, um, who is at the Wisconsin Historical Society, he wrote a thesis um, that had that was very well researched. Jamie Brewick of uh, Milwaukee Jazz Vision, which is a nonprofit that promotes jazz in the city. He has a Milwaukee jazz archive on the Milwaukee Jazz Vision's website. That was absolutely instrumental. Um, there have been a couple other books about Milwaukee jazz, not as comprehensive, not as trying to trying to cover all the years. So it's just kind of getting my clues from there, building the blocks. And then once you start talking to people, sort of following leads. And Manti Ellis, the, the great guitarist that I mentioned, he was sort of my first big interview. And from there, I just sort of branched out and tried to find as many people as I could. And it's really difficult with the early history because, um, you know, Manti was born... Uh, I want to say in the 20s, I think he, he, was, he was coming up in the 40s. Um, well, he's 86 now, so... We'll trust your math on that. Do the quick math, Jeremy, why I'm rambling. <laughs> Go ahead. We'll, we'll assume that's right. <laughs> okay. So so any anything before that, I mean, the 20s, the 30s, it is nearly impossible to talk to someone who saw that you know happen. So I'm coming a little late to the game, I'd say, in terms of that real beginning of jazz. And, and it's worth noting, in terms of the racial dynamics... Let's look at two trumpet players who were, who were both uh, big names in Milwaukee at one point. Jabbo Smith, a black man, and Wild Bill Davison, a white man. There's a biography about Wild Bill Davison, but there is barely any information about Jabbo Smith. So you see that the white musicians were just covered and, and the historical archive is just richer because there was that sort of racial preference at the time. Um, and so it was tough to find information about the early black musicians in Milwaukee, but they were the foundation for everything that's come afterward. 
Yeah. All right. And so a lot of the figures in the book seem somewhat transient. They're here for a few years. They're somewhere else for a few years. Maybe they're back for a decade. Is that just part of the nature of being a musician or is that something that was just, some, I guess, how common do you think that is for a city like Milwaukee? Is there something about our jazz scene that made people have less of a sense of permanence? Like Mandy Ellis seems like a rarity in that his Milwaukee legacy seems to be really long. Yeah. Where a lot of these people, you know, like, oh, they were playing here for six years and then Art Blakey recruited them out to New York or something like that. Yeah. Uh, Manti tried New York for a little bit, but uh, he said the moment he got off the plane, he felt like there was, you know, he was on a, a fast walk, uh, a treadmill is, is what he said. Um, he just didn't like the pace. And I think it is true about Milwaukee in a lot of respects in terms of the arts in general. Uh, music especially that you know someone might be passing through town on a gig and they say you know i like the the pace of this city and i like the parks and i like the energy so they move here for a little bit but then other things happen in their lives they get opportunities elsewhere and they move um, milwaukee is not chicago it's not new york it's not la it's not new orleans but it still has a rich jazz history given our proximity to chicago and just the homegrown talent that has come out of here some people choose to stay, some people leave. It just depends on the individual. All right. And were there certain photos, you mentioned that you had more photos than you could possibly fit in the book, given the constraints of not publishing a 500-page book or something. But was there a photo you knew existed but couldn't track down? Or? There wasn't a photo per se, but there, were, there are people, there are players whose names kept coming up. Dick Smith is a drummer that a lot of people said was way ahead of his time. He was doing sort of the hard bop stuff that became popularized in the 50s and 60s. He was doing it in the 40s in Milwaukee, and he was respected across the country for his drumming. Couldn't find a photo of Dick Smith. Um, Baltimore Birdeau, who's, um, who was who an instrumental player in the Milwaukee jazz scene, and, and he was a little bit more recent than Dick Smith. Couldn't find a photo of him. So there are these people um, that I you know, know are important, and I mentioned in the book, um, but we just couldn't find a photo. Well, that brings up another question. You didn't get to meet a lot of these people because of the age and the era in which this all happened uh, or started happening. Uh, given that, how tough was it to assess the claims of so many people on how good certain musicians were or how important they were? Oh, there's a lot of subjectivity <laughs> <laughs> to a project like this. Um, you know, in terms of fact-checking, some of it is just one person's word against nothing else because there's no other recorded history or, or, you know, anything to debate that. Um, so a lot of it is just trusting people. I, I've been a journalist for years. And so interviewing, I, I feel like is one of my strong suits and just getting to know people and, and having an understanding of the dynamics. And, and, and I tried to be as, uh, you know, as, as include as many people as I could, as many different scenes, but, um, you know, going back again to the, to the racial dynamics, I was, conscious of of including as many black faces as i could because those are the people who created this art form and while it has become whiter through the years because a lot of other music has become popular jazz still plays a role in every genre today well let's talk a bit more about race and kind of what the legacy of milwaukee has impacted on the jazz culture one of the things that struck me you were talking about venues there was a lot downtown particularly in what's now west town but there was also a lot in what we now call Bronzeville. I don't know if it was historically always called that, but there's a debate about that. But let's just, for you know, for all intents and purposes, north of downtown Walnut Street, we'll call it Bronzeville. Okay, and much of that area was 
or not much, but a significant portion of it was demolished to make way for what's now Interstate 43. Did that have a lasting impact on our jazz scene or had the jazz scene, was it able to adapt and move already or had it moved already? It, it had started to move already. There, there's some debate about, uh, you know, how big of an impact that had because this is the late 50s, early 60s. And at that time, jazz has already been, is in the process of being replaced by R&B and rock and roll as the preeminent uh, genre in the country. So there's a couple different factors at play. There's no doubt that it hurt the black community as a whole, not just the jazz scene, but as a whole, that interstate project. There's not like something like this club disappeared and then the scene really dropped off, that the the, mu- the music moved, the people moved yes. and kept yeah. the, the beat alive, we'll say. Yes, and the hotels became a major place uh, to host jazz in the 50s and 60s. Um, I got a great picture of Art Blakey performing at the Midtown Inn Hotel. Um, For those of us that aren't aware, where's the Midtown Inn or where was it? I want to say, this is going off top, 35th in Wisconsin-ish, somewhere on the near west side, west town-ish. But but I will say, though, uh, to go back to sort of the clubs and pre the um, construction of the highway, those clubs in Bronzeville, so, so like I said, jazz was a black art form, um, and the clubs in the, what you could see in town reflected sort of the, the segregation in the country at large in the 20s and 30s. Um, you know, downtown, no, no black patrons could go downtown, but Duke Ellington was playing downtown at, at venues and theaters, but he couldn't even stay at a hotel downtown. He could stay, he would stay in Bronzeville, right? But... Jazz is sort of this integrating force in that uh, there were black and tans, which means clubs that invited white and black patrons in Bronzeville in the day, in the 20s and 30s, 40s. Um, And at after-hours clubs, black musicians and white musicians mingled because they respected each other over the music. And some white musicians in the 40s, 50s, 60s made it a point to have black players in their band, therefore integrating all white clubs on the south side and in downtown. Well, talk a bit about after-hours clubs, because that's something that comes up repeatedly in the book, and to my knowledge, isn't something that at least legally exists today. When you say after-hours clubs, what do you mean? Um, there were bars uh, sometimes. I know the, the Black Musicians Union, that was a popular spot to go after your regular paying gig to just play into the wee hours of the morning, just, just to jam. And anybody's welcome. And uh, who knows what went on? I know Wild Bill Davison, the white trumpet player I was uh, mentioning, he advertised one of his after hours out in the suburbs and uh, did it, pulled it off, tried to do it again, and the sheriff shut it down. Well, that's a bummer. (laughs) (laughs) But he would come come to Bronzeville and play in the Black Cubs, too. Because, like I said, for the most part, these white musicians, black musicians got along because they respected the music. There's one question in my life that was answered by this book that I had no idea. Well, one, it wasn't a question. I expected really to ever get answered but on west fond du lac avenue there's this bar that's boarded up that says satin dolls lounge on it yes tell me what is the connection to milwaukee jazz there i also had the burning question (laughs) (laughs) i I grew up like i said in sherman park and i would take fond du lac to downtown instead of the freeway sometimes so all my life i've been going past that building satin doll she was a dancer um in the 40s uh, 50s, and she even toured with Duke Ellington's band. She was a dancer in Duke Ellington's band. And she claims, and, and there's a little bit of debate about this, that his song Satin Doll was about her. Um, maybe she took the name because of the song. I'm not sure which one comes first. We'll take her word for it. So she becomes known as Satin Doll. 
She has a husband named Cricket. They are uh, famous dancers in Milwaukee. They dance at um, jazz clubs. And it, it was very common at the time to have dancers at jazz clubs. Um, and so once she got a little bit older and her dancing career kind of had ended, um, professionally, she opened this club in, I believe, the 70s. Um, and it itself was an invite-only sort of club. And famously, in 2008, uh, David Byrne of the Talking Heads uh, made his way over there. And I don't think he had an invitation. I think he just showed up to kind of take a picture and knock on the door. And eventually she let him in. She was a character, though, from what I understand. I did not get a chance to talk to her. She has passed. Um, but she was a character. She used to carry a gun. She used to uh, not take any crap. <laughs> well, we've talked a lot about music. And in the book, you can see it being performed. But where can people go today to listen to it? If, if I want to hear jazz, where am I going in Milwaukee? Um, the Jazz Estate has reopened under new ownership and is doing wonderful. And that's on Murray, right? That's on the on east Murray side. on the east side. It's a very small, intimate club, um, but it, it's great. If you want that sort of vintage jazz club feel, I'd say go to the estate. Um, also, Transfer Pizzeria on Tuesdays, Thursdays, they host jazz. Um, and we, that's Mitchell Street and Walker's Point. That is correct. Where else? Um, Sugar Maple occasionally has jazz shows. Dr. J's on Fond du Lac. Sugar Maple's in Bayview. Yep. Um, Dr. J's on Fond du Lac. Um, no, what? Mr. J's. Excuse me, Mr. J's. Um, what about like the Mason Street Grill? I see them advertising. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, is excuse that a me. place known for jazz? Are yeah. They? No, the Fister Hotel. I mean, shout out to the Fister Hotel, one of the longest running institutions to support jazz in Milwaukee. Um, what you now know is Blue, the um, bar on the 23rd floor there, used to be the Crown Room, and they hosted uh, national named jazz artists. And booked jazz music to this day. Um, the great Al Jarreau, um, arguably Milwaukee's biggest uh, jazz name after Woody Herman, who was a, a band leader um, back in the big band era. Uh, Al Jarreau got his start sort of playing at, I mean, his, his professional start sort of playing at the Fister in um, the Lobby Lounge bar there. And um, yeah, you can still today go to Mason Street Grill. Jamie Brewick, who wrote the introduction to the book, I had mentioned him before, him and Mark Davis, play there regularly. Uh, and then at Blue on the 23rd floor, which is definitely one of the base, best places um, to experience jazz in the city. And talk a bit about Woody and Al, because people that know jazz know those names. People that don't know jazz very well, at least locally, and I, I put myself in that group, kind of know those names, especially Al Jarreau to me. That's like a name I know. But I don't know much about those people. Tell yeah. the listeners about them. All right. So let, let's do Woody Herman first, because he was younger. Um, he was sort of a wonder kid entertainer, played instruments, danced, sang. He ended up out in L.A. eventually after stints here and there. What kind of era are we talking here? Uh, talking the 20s, okay. 20s and 30s, the big band era, okay? And, the, and you mentioned there was this part where the book got a little wider. This was the big band era. Um, there were big bands, orchestra-type bands, who were incorporating the jazz style because jazz was this new, exciting thing. And so they had these huge orchestras. Um, there were black band leaders, of course, as well. Duke Ellington, uh, Fletcher Henderson, Chick Webb. But, um, but yeah, Woody Herman was one of, the, one of the biggest white band leaders in the day. And he was a Milwaukee native. And he would come back home regularly, play gigs. There's a foundation. And there was a memorial concert after he died in his honor. All right. And Al Jarreau? Al Jarreau is a Milwaukee native. They grew up not too far from each other, sort of River West, sort of where we are now. Uh, I think Al grew up a little bit um, west of here. 
But um, Al Jarreau started singing on the streets, doo-wop groups with his friends in the school playgrounds, at PTA meetings, in church. Um, he was, grew up in a very musical family. And he, like I said, played in the hotels. He, uh, interesting thing about Al Jarreau, he met a very important piano player early on in his career. We have a clip open of, Al, of my interview with Al Jarreau talking about this piano player. I felt some things in Milwaukee that were very important for me and came across some people who changed my life. One of them was a guy named, named Laszlo Zimber, C-Z-I-M-B-E-R, from Hungary, who came uh, to Milwaukee r r running from the revolution in Hungary that was going on at that time. They were in an uproar against, uh, against Moscow. Oh. And... Um, and people on the run, mm -hmm. and 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 accepted into into the country and and into Milwaukee. Oh, there was migration, immigration, and uh, this guy was a brilliant piano player. Took me under his wing, and we sang some very important dates uh, together at at the Fister. I learned so much from 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 Les Zimber. He's part of my Yellow Brick Road, and so is the Fister Hotel. And then later, when Al moved to the Bay Area, to San Francisco, uh, Laszlo Zimber um, went out there as well, and they played together. And Al went on to be the most, uh, one of the most uh, decorated uh, Grammy-winning uh, Milwaukee natives. Uh, we only have a couple minutes left. Uh, you gave me a clip also of the Wisconsin Conservatory of Music in 1978. This surprised me a bit. What role does the conservatory play in modern jazz music in Milwaukee, and I guess historically? Well, I, I kind of already mentioned historically they were part of the Renaissance in the 70s. Today, they continue to train um, jazz musicians, young jazz musicians today. And the, the popularity of jazz sort of ebbs and flows. Um, I feel like 2015, when uh, Kendrick Lamar, the, the great hip-hop artist, was incorporating live jazz onto his records. There was sort of this boom of popularity with jazz, but it'll never go away. Um, Manti Ellis likes to say, you know, it, you know, it just keeps popping up. It's like the whack-a-moles, you know, jazz in, in America. But I do want to say, um, before we end, that I did make it a point to include um, three of the most, uh, the biggest sort of non-jazz Milwaukee um, exports in music in the book, that th those being Violent Femmes, um, Les Paul, and Liberace. And you might say, okay, I, I can get the first two, you know, the Femmes incorporate jazz elements and Les Paul played some jazz in his career, but Liberace, come on, he's not a jazz artist. And none of those three are jazz artists per se, but the truth is that in Liberace's early career, he was playing piano and singing in jazz clubs in downtown Milwaukee. And so j it, the larger point that I was trying to make is that jazz music inspires and touches all genres of music, American music, that have come afterward. And the same is true with, like, local legend Paul Seabar. You know, Seabar is more of an R&B rock and roll guy, but his bands, like the R&B Cadets and the Milwaukeeans, were full of musicians who are trained as jazz artists and have jazz careers as well as being part of Seabar's band. So this music touches everything up until the present, hip-hop as well. You know, I want to give a quick shout-out to 88.9, just released a, a fantastic uh, limited podcast series called Backspin, searching the search for Milwaukee's first hip-hop song. That just came out this week. So it's a big week for Milwaukee music history.
All right, and we're recording this in mid-July. If you want to learn more about Joey's book, you can go to milwaukeejazzbook.com. It's also available at Better Bookstores everywhere. The book is Milwaukee Jazz, Images of America, published in early July by Joey Grijalva in Arcadia Publishing. Joey, we have about 30 seconds. Tell me your underrated Milwaukee restaurant. Underrated Milwaukee restaurant would have to be Coffee Makes You Black. Their catfish is my favorite fish in town. If you want a fish fry, it would have to be early because they're like a, a breakfast brunch spot um, on Fridays or any day of the week that they are open. I would recommend. I love the catfish uh, plate at Coffee Makes You Black. My guest today has been Joey Grijalva. You can read all his work online, Milwaukee Jazz, MKE Jazzbook.com. Sorry. Talk to you next week.